Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host and joining me are co-host Mel and my beautiful wife, Christy. Hey guys, how's it going? Today we have an interview with Terry Wardle and uh, this interview is unbelievable. This is one of those guys that like I totally underestimated. I saw him on the schedule. It was kind of the end of the day. I think it was our last interview that day. I was tired. I was like, okay, let's just kind of like hear this guy's story. I hate to admit this, but I'm like, all right, let's hear this. And then I was, but at the end of it, I was like, what just happened? Like, you that were actually was the kind most, of speechless, Davey. <laughs> I was. I got off and I was that like... That has never happened in our whole the, relationship, so... Do you remember, <laughs> you remember that, babe? I came back and I was yes. like, we just had the most incredible interview ever. Like, And I think it was like three of them back to back that were just amazing, all three mm-hmm. of them. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say about this right now, but this is one of those, Terry Wardle. Uh, so in, an, in a little bit, you're going to get to hear from him. Before we jump into that interview, though... I've invited you guys to join me on this, Christy, for you to be a guest co-host for us because we want to talk about and continue this mini-series on how to support other people as they're walking through trial. So we've talked about how to support your spouse. We've talked about how to support um, your kids. We've talked about how to support your friends. You can go back and listen to those three episodes, the previous three episodes. Now I want to talk a little bit about how to support, uh, you know, acquaintances, coworkers, uh, people you go to church with, kind of the people in the outer sphere of your life that mm-hmm. you hear about stuff that's going on. And, um, you know, you feel this prompting, I need to do something, I need to support them, but you don't know what to do and you don't know how to. It can so, be awkward. I mean, yeah. I think the biggest thing is people aren't good with, unhappy things. I'm an Enneagram seven. So if there's any emotion other than happy or joy, it's kind of like, what is this? What is this feeling? Like, am I crying or my my face is leaking? I mean, it's confusing. And so I think the biggest thing that you need to step, and we always say this, but it's it's true, step into their pain with them. Mm -hmm. I loved the episode with Justine. Um, She basically said that as humans, we have emotions. So yeah, we can't, fully empathize with people because we haven't experienced it, but we can empathize with people because we have emotions and we Mm. know how things can feel. That's so good. And so in the same way, you don't have to step into their experience with them and be on the same level playing ground with them. You just have to have emotions as a human. And so um, I remember a good example would be, and again, I'm not the expert. I'm, I feel like I'm always awkward about it and I don't know what to do. But I, I, right before I say anything or do anything, I always pray for discernment of what is needed mm. at that moment. And so I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing ever is just praying for discernment in that time that you're walking that's with really others because they're not like your best friends. Yep. So it's kind of hard to speak into other people's lives when they haven't, you haven't really deposited anything. So a good example would be I... Um, and, and in this homeschool co-op with some friends and um, every week I would sit next to this one woman in this classroom and I didn't know her story mm-hmm. and I was pregnant at the time and we got in this conversation about one of her kids who was born with a diaphragmatic hernia and he ended up passing away almost immediately mm-hmm. after being born and wow. I just remember sitting there like just shocked how in the world have I sat and known this woman this long and yet haven't even known that she's walked through something this hard. Yeah. And one of my first things I asked was just, hey, can I ask you some more questions about him? I'm really interested in what happened and mm-hmm. I want to hear more about your son. And at the very end of that conversation, she just 
with tears in her eyes, said, thank you so much for asking me me about my son. Most people don't know what to say, and they won't even ask me a single question about him. And it feels like he never even lived and was never a person. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I was sitting here bawling with her at the end of that, just like, wow, I... I didn't realize how much healing was going to happen in that conversation by me just stepping into it with her and being bold enough to ask. Yeah. And most people wouldn't. That's a really awkward question to ask, you know, but to, again, like what you said, like lean in in that situation and go, Hey, what, how can I like, how can I empathize with this person? What would I want to be asked? I mean, you put yourself in her shoes Mm -hmm. in that moment, even though you had not experienced something like that. And no advice was given. No Bible verse was, you know, given to her anything like that. It was more of, let me just listen to you and hear about your, your trial. That's it. Well, I I think something that's really fascinating, Christy, is like, as she was telling you her story, like she had mentioned that she had four, because she was, you, she was asking you about labor and delivering. She had mentioned that she had four, um, deliveries, but you mm-hmm. knew her and just well enough to know that there were only three children in the picture. Mm-hmm. And so you could actually ask and, and you saw, and I think that that's the biggest thing that, um, with it's whether it's an acquaintance or a coworker or somebody that you see in church that you don't do tons of life with, but just having eyes to see yeah. mm-hmm. and then speaking out and saying like, Hey, like this doesn't really add up. Would you mind sharing more about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, Davey, you actually asked us this question earlier this week about why, like why support people that mm. um, isn't your spouse, isn't mm. your child, isn't your friend. You know, we have such relationally, we have such a limited capacity. And um, I mean, obviously it's like the Sunday school answer, but it's Jesus. Like yep. he's the reason he's the compelling agent. Yep. And, um, and I, the verse that came to mind was, um, what is it? Matthew 9, 30 three through 36, like, um, when he saw, um, the sheep, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd and, um, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And I think sometimes when I think of being a laborer, I think of just, um, communicating the gospel and it Mm. is that, but I think furthermore, it's just, um, being willing to love people and get messy with people and, um, hurt with them and listen to them. And so, um, I I think it's why I loved a couple episodes ago, Ginger Sprouse, her Mm. episode where she just, um, continually saw a homeless man at the same corner and, (laughs) um, built that relationship with him. And then really like without her, his life would look completely different. It would take a whole new trajectory. And so, um, yeah, that's my thought. Supporting people through pain is just being observant. Yeah. Well, I know you said, you know, pray for pray to the Lord of the harvest that you send out the laborers, that oftentimes that causes us to think about more of an evangelistic type mentality, you know, that uh, pray that, uh, that, that we have laborers out there who are sharing the gospel, who are winning people to Christ. But I mean, if you think about it, what better way to evangelize, what better way to share the gospel, what better way to point people to Jesus than to see people whom oftentimes the church overlooks, Mm. you know, many other people are overlooking, to see them in their pain and to step into it and to give them hope. I mean, when you think about your coworkers, when you think about your friend, maybe not your friends, but your acquaintances and other people that, you know, you don't know if they don't, if they know Christ or not. You know, you don't know them well enough. They're not on a friend level. So you have no idea what's going on in their world spiritually. But when you see that they're hurting, this is a fantastic opportunity to step in and go, hey, how can I meet a... Jesus met physical needs and he met emotional needs before he met spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. 
So how do we meet physical needs and emotional needs so that then we can, it gives us an opportunity, a platform to meet those spiritual needs. That's and really I think good. you're, you're dead on, you know, when it comes to the why Mel, it's because as tried as it sounds, because Jesus did, mm-hmm. he did that for us. That's our story. And he calls us to do the same. Yeah. You know, he said, um, what you do for the least of these, you also do for me. So mm. if you visited them in prison, if you gave them something to drink, if you gave them, then you're doing that for me. And so ultimately that, you know, we're doing this, uh, so that people would, would see Jesus and that they would come into the ultimate hope that's going to sustain them through anything. And that is a relationship with Jesus. That's why we support people. That's why we love people because Jesus, yeah. his love compels us to do that. We can't help it because we, so we're overflowing with his love. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it means we got to get outside of ourselves and we just got to we got to step into it. And when I hear too, like, hey, you need to meet needs of others who have needs. For me, I'm like, well, I'll meet everyone's needs then because <laughs> everyone has a need. And so I think I heard recently that the same with Jesus. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to walk like he did. And so he didn't meet every single need that yeah. came across. And so he is our savior, but he didn't have a savior mentality either. Like right. I can only do this. He would step away when he was exhausted. He would meet with the father and mm-hmm. he would meet with the 12 disciples. And so in the same way with us, there are needs. And I would say, just listen to the Holy Spirit. That's when it. you feel like, okay, I keep on just like Ginger Sprouse. I keep on seeing this homeless man on the side of the road. Like, what can I do with that? Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, if you feel that Holy Spirit urge, like, hey, you need to meet this person's need. Not only does it benefit them, but it also benefits you. Yeah. I left, I leave conversations <laughs> a lot of times meeting a need in tears, like, Lord, thank you for that conversation. Mm-hmm. Or so Lord, thank you that I was able to like provide whatever for that person. Man, that's so good. We were sitting around the table with my brother-in-laws and talking about this idea of supporting other people because, you know, we've been on the other end of people supporting us. And I I think the resounding, um, the, the resounding thing that people, that the, those guys were saying was when the initial crisis is over, right? Because everybody reaches out and supports you during the initial crisis. Everybody reaches out and supports somebody in the initial crisis. Mm-hmm. When that initial wave is over, if you're intentional about going back and reaching out to that person weeks, months later and saying, Hey, I, I I'm praying for you still. And, um, you know, giving them words of encouragement, giving them, um, you know, maybe even praying for them right there or doing some of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before about meeting some of those tangible needs months later, because that's the time that they're going to feel a vacuum. Mm-hmm. They're going to feel everybody else is kind of pulled back, just going on with life. And now they're left alone to try to sort through the pieces of all of this stuff. That's when they need it the most. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another way to really support somebody that you see this an acquaintance of yours that's walking through um, some, some tough things. Well, you think about it, they're going through a lot of grief and then they're getting a lot of people around them at the same time. Right. And so once their head starts kind of giving them <laughs> getting above water, that's the time to actually give them a meal at that time, whether it's two or three months later, still give them a meal, drop it off at their door and don't stay for 20 minutes, two hours, three hours. Cause yep. they got, they have stuff going on like we all do. Yep. So drop it off at the doorstep and ring the doorbell and leave and just text hmm. them saying, Hey, I left you something. Uh, feel free if you ever want to reach out. That's yeah. great. That's really good. Well, um, this has been such a great series. It's yeah. been beneficial for me. I feel like it equips me to know how to meet various people in my life um, when they're walking through pain. Um, but we, one thing that we love on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast is to hear from you guys and to mm-hmm. hear how this um 
podcast is impacting you and what you're gleaning from it. And um, somebody actually wrote in recently and they said, um, enjoying listening to this podcast on my commute every morning. I've quickly caught up on all the episodes, inspiring guests with great stories to encourage and motivate you. Hmm. And so we are so thankful that you have listened to all of the episodes. I agree. Mm-hmm. They are all great. so great. Um, and we're, we're thankful that you are encouraged and that God is, um, using this ministry to bless you. And yeah. so, um, always feel free to write a review for us. Um, and if you're, listening to this episode, screenshot it, mention it on Instagram. Our handle is nothing is wasted ministries. We love to know what's in your earbuds and uh, (laughs) what you're thinking. So anyways, also we need to thank Christy for joining us. Thank you. Yes, Christy. Thank you so much. It was a joy having you. Oh my goodness. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you, babe. And you're going to enjoy listening to this interview with Terry Wardle because of how much I've doted about it. So I'm excited for you to listen to it. (laughs) I'm excited about our listeners listening to it. So let's not delay. Let's listen to this interview with Terry Wardle. Terry, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm thrilled. It's a great honor, truly. Well, man, I I would love to hear a little bit about uh, you and your life um, right now. I know you've just come out with this book, Some Kind of Crazy, and I'm really fascinated about diving into this because you've got so many different uh, layers of healing that you're going to be talking about. It's such a such a, an incredible, incredible story. But tell me a little bit about you right now. What is what is what does your life currently look like? What do you do? What's your family like? Well, let me begin by saying that the life I'm living right now I, I would have never anticipated. And in fact, if life is like math, then where I am shouldn't add up. I am in a mm. spot where I get to spend time uh, positioning people for deep emotional healing. I do seminars all across the country, helping counselors and pastors and caregivers and psychiatrists and physicians and chaplains. I help them learn how to position the emotionally broken for experiences of healing in Jesus Christ. Mm. And um, I live, uh, my base is out of Ashland, Ohio. I had spent 20 years here as a seminary professor. And then when I decided that was enough of that, I have spent my full time uh, running around, equipping people, empowering people uh, in Christ to experience him in ways that are absolutely transformational. Mm. And I'm uh, just thoroughly thrilled that God could use a guy like me, uh, a guy with a limp, if you will, Mm. to promote this amazing dance of uh, God's grace that happens in the lives of people that really many of them feel that their brokenness disqualifies them. But in fact, it's their brokenness that becomes the context of some of the greatest healing they'll ever experience. And also some of the greatest ministry they'll ever see will flow absolutely through those places of brokenness. In terms of my family, I'm a husband of Cheryl. We've been married for years and years. Uh, We started to date, believe it or not, in uh, December 31st, 1967. Mm. We were teenagers. I have three adult children, all married. I have six grandchildren. My children all serve the Lord in one capacity or another. I have a son in Colorado out at Boulder. He's a a worship pastor at a large church there, and a daughter who's married to a pastor, and another daughter who spends her time in human resources. So 
I'm, oh. I'm blessed. I'm absolutely, uh, as I said, uh, looking at the life I lived and the experiences I had early on, I would have never predicted that this would be the way I get to spend my time. But it's part of God's absolutely wonderful transforming grace that, wow, just takes us places we never would have dreamed. Mm. And often we go to those places through circumstances and situations that many of us wish we would have avoided. But in fact, God now uses them to his glory. Wow. Well, you know, I love what you said that when it comes to uh, our brokenness can in fact lead to uh, an incredible healing for not just ourselves, but for other people that God turns that brokenness around into, into blessing for other people. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll say that it seems like in this world, hurt people tend to hurt people. They kind of perpetuate the pain mm-hmm. and the brokenness and that they've experienced onto other people. But the reality is, is when God gets a hold of your, your pain and he transforms it, then hurt people can heal people. And you're a walking testimony of that. You're, you're helping other people find healing in their brokenness, but it hasn't come uh, through an easy road. Um, you know, your, your memoir that you've written here is a, about a lot of brokenness that happened in your childhood growing up in um, the Appalachian coal fields. Now, I, I read uh, Hillbilly Elegy. And so this is, this is mm-hmm. something that fascinates me because this is kind of a new conversation. I feel oftentimes we talk about brokenness in urban contexts, but something that's emerging right now in the conversation uh, across, the, across the country uh, with your book and with, with Hillbilly Elegy is the brokenness that took place in some of the poor rural Appalachian um, you know, f- fields, so to speak. Will you talk to me about uh, your childhood? Tell me about some of the things that you experienced that has kind of led you into uh, this, this this discovery of healing from this. I will. Let me let me begin by saying I, I also read the Hillbilly Elegy and I read Educated, and those are powerful books. Mm. Uh, as I read them, the one thing that came to my mind was that they're extremely descriptive. But if there is a missing element, it was the prescriptive part. Yep. How do you then begin to see people move toward healing so good. Uh, in the midst of this? And when the opportunity came uh, for me to write this story, the one thing I was absolutely committed to was that this would point to Jesus. That's so so good. that individuals that hear this story would begin to find themselves in the story and it would cause them to look at their own narrative wow. because the one thing that's true of my life, and I will share here in a moment about my childhood, is that my, my, my life narrative is bending toward wholeness, but it's only bending toward wholeness because of Jesus yeah. and the fact that he's been leaning on me all these years through a variety of circumstances, even when I didn't know him. And then after I did know him, when I was kind of not sure, do I want to walk that way or am I going to walk the way of the world? I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a little town. My great-grandfather had come from England, interestingly enough. He had been in prison there. He was married and had a couple children. He then escaped over here to the States, and when he got to the States, he just forgot that family over there, married what would have been then my great-grandmother, and they had eight children in this little area in western Pennsylvania that's filled with farms and coal mining. Uh, They all had large families. And out of those Mm -hmm. families, of course, my grandfather was uh, was born. And uh, my grandfather was um, 
a very charming man that was not a very good man. He was mm. someone that engaged in crime. Uh, by our standards today, we would have seen him as a sex addict and a criminal. By those standards, I remember my family just said he liked to sow wild oats and he had a way with the women. Mm. But he <laughs> uh, was brutal uh, with my father and my, uh, my aunt. Um, he and my grandmother had to get married and they were only together uh, a few years. And boy, the stories of them are amazing that uh, mm. when they would fight, it would be fists and frying pans. And uh, there was really no moral center. My, my family had a disdain for religion and a disdain for education. Mm. They would pretty much make fun of anyone who went in either of those two directions. Uh, so while they were very tight-knit, all these aunts and uncles and grandfathers and, and of course, my dad and mom, very tight-knit, they also had a high tolerance for breaking the law and a high tolerance for what could be seen as uh, unhealthy and at times immoral behavior. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, Davey, one of my earliest memories was uh, I was sitting on the hardwood floor of my grandparents' home. Uh, playing with uh, cowboy figures. When I was little, I dreamed of one thing, and that was to be a cowboy. And uh, <laughs> I was playing on the hardwood floor when my grandfather came in, and uh, he said to Grandma, uh, get Terry ready, I want to take him for a ride. And so uh, that seemed odd, but she got me ready. We went for a ride, and we ended up making a turn down a very dark road and then up a two-lane a little two-track way up into the woods, and it was dark, and I could remember hearing the screeches of branches along the side of the car, which sounded like witches howling. And all of a sudden, my grandfather told me to get in the back seat and hide. And as he said that, he pulled a revolver out of the glove box, and then he jumped out of the car, locked it, and left. And there I was as a four- or five-year-old kid laying on the floor, shivering with great fear. And my grandfather was gone for quite a while, then he came back, huffing and puffing, jumped in the car. We backed out. On the way home, he says, don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. um, that night, when I did go to my own home, I did tell my parents, and they blew it off as though an imagination of a child. However, they knew exactly what my grandfather was doing. And later on, when I got older, they told me that he would sneak off and go out that old trail and then go through the woods to have uh, – an adulterous relationship with a neighbor's wife while he was off uh, stripping coal. So that was one of my very, very first experiences as a child. And my parents certainly didn't process that, but it began to introduce fear. Soon after that, I saw that grandfather die right mm -hmm. in front of me, uh, literally steps in front of me. Soon after that, I was in another occasion with death. My parents did not in any way uh, process these kind of things. My uncle next door, uh, soon after that in an angry time with my aunt ended up shooting her. Uh, mm. and all these no talk events just build up inside of me right. to where as a small child, I became afraid. I mean, terribly afraid of virtually everything. Mm. And by being afraid of virtually everything, I then had to wear the tag my dad called me a weenie and my mother a nervous child, mm. uh, even though they never considered that some of these events could add to that. And yeah. by the time I got into my early teenager's years, what I learned was that aggressive behavior could compensate for fear. And that's when I began to go down a very different road mm. of uh, getting engaged in uh, 
really aberrant, dysfunctional behaviors that were driven very much by a storm inside of me of deep fear. Because the fact of the matter is, and I've come to believe this with all my heart, that when we have unrepaired emotional ruptures, there's a part of us that stays suspended in that time mm-hmm. until we're able to process that. Right. And so here, suspended within me, are these little children, uh, the small part of me that's very afraid, that's seeing death, that's being abused. And yet I grew up and I had to try to find a way to still that storm rather than learning initially how to move back into that. Mm. Um with Jesus. And that I think is indicative of what happens with many people Yeah, that they have some tough things that they go through early in life. They then compensate for them. They find dysfunctional behaviors that will in some way steal that storm. Mm. They move on through life. And yet that part of their life is still in, well, unrepaired ruptures mm. that can bring a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, and David, there's a, there's a, um, a great author named Miroslav Volf who once said that when we don't see healing of the unrepaired ruptures of the past, it becomes the first thing we see when we look to the future. We begin to anticipate life as having more of the same, and we then compensate our lives around that to try to control. And so uh, that's that's what the early years were like for me. Uh, And Here's what I've come to realize, too. It, it's not just what happened to me that messed me up, yeah. but it's how I then responded to what happened to me right. that left a part of me unable to grow past, unable yeah. to be healed. And I think that's where some of Jesus does some of his best work. And that's what I've learned in the long run. Yeah. Wow. You know, you, you said that through all of this, obviously, your family was uh, disdainful toward um, any kind of the idea of religion and education, certainly disdainful toward Christianity. Somehow God got a hold of you. <laughs> Somehow you had a radical encounter with him that began this process of healing for you. Uh, talk to me about that. How did you come to know Christ even out of all of this brokenness? Well, it was very interesting that in our little village, when I was an early teenager, an evangelist came to town. Uh, now, this evangelist, Davy, was kind of half evangelist, half vaudeville show. And the <laughs> vaudeville show part of it was that he had a song leader that would sing these robust songs as the people gathered. And he would be in the back and would have dressed like Jesus, pasted on a beard, wearing a robe with a blue sash. And then what he would do is, while they were singing, he might peek around a corner, then disappear. He might show up on a balcony look down. People would see him and ooh and on, then he'd disappear. And that would happen three or four times during the song service. And people would kind of get whipped into a frenzy. And then he would take this all off and come out and preach the gospel. Well, Mm. my mother, when I was about 13 years old or so, my mother went to one of these services. And uh, she ended up dragging me there. But the point of the story was, as strange as this was, my mother had an encounter with Christ there. Mm. And it began to turn us toward church. Now, her encounter with Christ was a strange combination of Pentecostalism, legalism, and I always said numerology. And somewhere in the midst of all that, she began to think and talk of Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. we went to um, 
we started to go to a little local church, and it was around the time that David Wilkerson was traveling around with uh, uh, some of those uh, uh, gang members from New York City. Mm. And this little church was taking teenagers off to New York City in order to hear Dave Wilkerson. Now, I didn't know what that was all about, but there were girls going, and I was interested. And so, you know, <laughs> 14 years old or so, I pow on the bus and I go. And uh, it was uh, at the Syria Mosque in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and thousands of people gathered. And Catherine Kuhlman, a Pentecostal evangelist, was there hosting it. And to make a long story short, he preaches this sermon about hellfire and the sword of the Lord coming through the land. And it scared me so badly that after a while, when he had an altar call, I went forward. Mm. And I was scared out of my mind. But you know what? They're kneeling. I, I experienced something that was genuine. It was a deep touch of God's love. I'm up there to escape hell. But instead, I found a moment of the love of God. And I swear, God put a homing device inside of me. And mm. something deep trans transformed inside of me. And then what happened was, I began to move forth for a number of years, I would say for six, seven years, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I didn't know whether I was a dev devil or a disciple. <laughs> and I would run, a run wild over the weekend, go to church on Sunday. I would go to revival services when they were there. And then I'd again get involved in things I shouldn't be involved in. And that continued all the way into college. And then one night when I was out doing things I shouldn't have been doing, I could feel the darkness of having one foot in the world. And in the midst of that, I found an apartment uh, where there were some guys that I knew uh, loved Jesus, and I knocked on the door at once in the morning. They wanted to know what I was there for, and I just said, I want to live the rest of my life for Christ. And I knelt there. They prayed for me. And that's when it all really kind of moved to the center. Wow. And from there, I moved forward to find a way to serve the Lord. Eventually, I got a, a bachelor's degree. By the way, I didn't go to college because I wanted education. I went to college because at that time, the draft was hot and heavy. <laughs> a lot of my friends had been drafted, yeah. and some of them had lost their lives. Mm. And so I got into college by the skin of my teeth. But then once I was there, I liked learning. And then after a bachelor's degree, I went on because I felt a call, and I, I got a master's degree uh, in, uh, at a seminary and then started to serve the Lord. Now, as mm -hmm. I say all that, two things are important to know. One, God's hand was on me, and there was some great fruit to my ministry. But number two, all those unresolved ruptures in my life were still yeah. very present inside. Yeah, uh, they, they didn't get instantly healed right. when I accepted Jesus. And so I began to now not have the painkillers I did in the past, not be able to turn to the things I did in the past. And so the pain of the unresolved past began to really surface. Mm. And at a time when people would have thought that I couldn't have been more successful, I, I ended up going through a very dark time. Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, I want to I get to that in just a second, but it's re really interesting. I want to camp here for what you're talking about, because I think oftentimes people have the illusion that as soon as you come to know Christ, all of that stuff is healed. All that stuff is uh, com completely mended back together. And, you know, we say oftentimes that we want God to heal and poof, but he, he does sometimes, every once in a while, but most of the time he heals in process. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the narrative of the Israelites, you see him doing kind of a 
a, a multi-part process in the lives of the Israelites where he frees them from slavery. He gets them out of Egypt, but then there's a, there's a 40-year wandering in the wilderness that he's getting Egypt out of them, that there's, there's restoration and healing and, um, and trust being built and helping them to understand their identity in who God is rather than in being slaves. And uh, this, is, this is kind of all of our Christian journey but particularly in your story where you've got so much unresolved pain and brokenness, uh, it's, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to surface. I feel like most of the time we're, we're, we're very unaware of some of the unresolved pain and brokenness, you know, until something happens, pressure hits our life and it begins to surface. How do you become aware of that? How do you become aware of, man, I've got all these little things, these tendrils of my past that I have not dealt with and I need to deal with that, um, particularly when we're a very unaware culture in general. In some of the previous things I've written, I've developed a little narrative assessment instrument that goes like this. Unhealed wounds create false beliefs. Those false beliefs that we live with create a lot of emotional upheaval, and emotional upheaval drives people to do things that are going to hurt themselves, mm. like addictive behaviors, uh, manipulation, control, people-pleasing performance, and so forth. So one of the things that I talk to people about is this. Look, we don't have to go on a deep digging uh, uh, event in order to find out if you have issues. Here's the question. Do you find yourself caught in dysfunctional behaviors? Do you have an addiction? Do you have a dependency? Are you uh, performing all the time? Do you try to please everybody? Do you manipulate? Do you control? Mm. Uh, do you, you know, uh, and, and here's the issue. If you have the fruit, you have the root. Mm. And, and that Christ didn't come simply to forgive us of the fact that, you know, we're killing pain by eating too much ice cream. Right. He came to deal with the deep issues that drive that. You know, yeah. you take someone that, let's say their, their dad left them when they were a kid. That's a wound. That's a painful wound. And often kids don't understand it wasn't their fault. So they have all these false beliefs. If I'd have been a better child, it's my fault. Uh, I was unlovable. There's something wrong with me. When you begin to believe that false belief, it creates anger and anxiety and fear and insecurity. And nobody can live with chronic fear and insecurity and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So they begin to do things like act out get engaged in uh, aberrant behavior. And in a lot of churches, we focus on that aberrant behavior. Somebody, for example, that might have um, uh, an addiction to pornography, they go to their pastor, they talk about it. They, the pastor says, hey, do you know it's wrong? I know it's wrong. You know it's sin. I know it's sin. Well, let's repent. Well, the guy wants to repent. Mm. The problem is, it's a symptom. The real force is the unrepaired rupture deep inside that drives it. And until we let Jesus deal with that. At the best we can do is shift addictions, shift yeah. coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But God doesn't want us coping. He wants us free. And if I may, to just back up a little bit, you made this analogy of, you know, God wanting to get the Egypt out of uh, Israel. So true. So mm -hmm. true. And, and I look at that, and here's a couple of things I see. One is this. I think, I think the Israelites wanted to possess the blessings of God but I think God wanted them to be possessed by the God of blessing. Mm. And there's a huge difference between those two. Wow. I also think that they were after liberation. 
and God was after formation. Wow. And they didn't get on, they just didn't get in tune with God on this. And that's why it took so long. And I think the same thing is true of us. Healing is a journey. People will come to me at a seminar and they'll say, Terry, are you healed? And this is what I say. I'm healed. I'm being healed. I'm yet to be healed. Wow. And, and that's the, the notion of the journey. And part of this healing is sometimes God just, you know, he kind of puts a searchlight on an area of our life in which we're not acting out of who we really are in Christ. We have a dysfunctional behavior, and he wants us to go on a journey with him, if you will, a journey of descent. Mm-hmm. And in that descent, we begin to find what the emotion is, what the false belief is, and then boom, we find the unrepaired ruptures of our Mm. lives. And what Jesus says is, let me meet you there. That's good. Wow. Hey, friends, we are super excited about the year 2020. And the reason is, is because... We feel like God has downloaded so much vision and so much strategy for what this ministry could be, and frankly, what we believe it should be to help people navigate their trials, tragedies, and transitions and find purpose in their pain. However, we've kind of hit a standstill on what we can do, and we're asking you right now to partner with us. If this ministry has impacted you, in a major way, if it's encouraged you, if it's inspired you, if it's propelled you forward in walking with Jesus in your trial, would you consider partnering with us financially? I always encourage people first to give back to their local church through tithes. But as you and maybe you and your spouse are wrestling with where to give above and beyond, would you consider Nothing Is Wasted Ministries a place for you to give and to partner with us financially because your partnership with us would enable us in 2020 to do so many different things in helping people live, learn, and lead through pain. We'd be able to get our community groups launched where people could find community in whatever struggle they're going through. Uh, We'd be able to release more inspiring content and we'd be able to better care and pastor and coach people as they're navigating their trials. So, if you feel led to give to Nothing Is Wasted Ministries, go to nothingiswasted.com slash donate. You can make a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of $20, $50, $100 a month. And by giving more than $20 a month, it actually gains you access to our additional content that we provide our Nothing Is Wasted monthly partners. So again, nothingiswasted.com slash donate and partner with us in 2020. So you already, you kind of alluded to how this surfaced for you. You know, you said at a time when everybody from the outside would have looked at you and said, wow, he's at the most successful point of his life. He's at a peak, but under the surface, Mm -hmm. there was, there was a lot that was boiling. Um, Will you talk me, talk me through that? Walk me through that season. What were you doing? What was happening? And, and how did all this surface? Well, I had been uh, the head of a seminary in New York, uh, for a few years and God had blessed my ministry, but it just didn't feel like me. Mm. So I went out to California to be the head of a a new graduate department in Christian ministries at Simpson University. And while I was there, I decided I really liked to plant a church at the same time. And a a guy came with me 
uh, really gifted, talented guy that had been one of my students. And we teamed up and he was a real powerhouse. And anyhow, the church ended up growing from seven people on my back porch to well over 800, 900 within 18 months. So that mm. seems like real success. Yeah. I'd written a couple books. But in the midst of that, I start to begin to experience the anxiety I've been trying to kill for years, mm. for you know, 35 years. And it started coming to the surface and I'm pushing harder and I'm w- trying to work harder to run away from it. And I ended up, if you will, falling down the ladder of success. And mm. I, I went into a season of depression and a season of agoraphobia. And what threw me first was there was nothing in my present life that should have made me depressed or fearful. Yeah. I was successful. My kids were doing well. I was getting invited out to speak. And all of a sudden, I'm in a mess. And it was such a bad mess that I ended up uh, admitting myself 1,300 miles away in a psychiatric facility uh, in which uh, I had heard they had a Christian unit, and I knew I needed something that at least mentioned the name of Jesus. And uh, it was a nightmare, an absolute living nightmare. It, I, I used to think it was as if a switch had been turned off, but the truth is it had been coming for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was just able to outdistance it. And then all of a sudden, this unrepaired rupture, this pain of the past, this uh, running from the fearful part of me uh, ran me down. And Mm -hmm. I went through a long season of meeting the Lord, uh, at one point wondering if the Lord was even there, uh, and grappling with this whole issue. As a matter of fact, a couple things. One, I remember getting a letter soon after I arrived from one of my colleagues who said, don't ever tell anybody you've been in a psychiatric hospital. It'll ruin your ministry. Mm. Well, I did tell. And I guess to a degree it did ruin my ministry because instead of leaving there and becoming going back to being a super pastor, I began to become very concerned that we find a way to help the broken actually meet Christ Mm. And and to have more than concepts to explain their issue, but to actually have transforming encounters that would bring healing to their lives. You know, I was in the psychiatric hospital maybe a day or two, frightened out of my mind, dealing with deep depression, didn't know if God existed at the time, on what Henry now would call a journey not of my own choosing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed crying, and all of a sudden, I had a just a moment of clarity when I remembered hearing on the radio a presentation by Corrie Ten Boom, and she said this, there are times in life when the object of your greatest pain can become the source of your greatest blessing Mm. if you offer it to God. And I remember saying this, God, I hate this moment, but I offer it to you. If you're there, hear me say, I'll even offer you this mess. Wow. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time ministering and being ministered to in the African-American church. And one of the statements that comes out of that is, it takes a mess to make a message. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's part of what I experienced. It it wasn't immediate. It was a long journey out. But as I journeyed out, I began to see the terrain. I began to mark it down. I developed that narrative Mm -hmm. assessment instrument. And soon after that, what happened was I was being able to sit down with someone and position them to experience Christ. But 
Yeah, yeah. Let me go one other place, if I may, yeah, before absolutely. we move off of this. Mm-hmm. I, I came, I came out of the psychiatric hospital. Great people, but it was pretty conceptual. There wasn't a lot of spiritual integration in it. A lot of talk about Jesus, but not deep mm. spiritual integration. And I, I was with my wife, and I'm still in a very tough spot. And and I had read the Bible. I was memorizing scripture. I carried a notebook. But I'm telling you, some of what I was going through, it wasn't touching. And I started to read the Bible that night, and I read the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And boy, could I relate to the pain. It's almost like he was having a post-traumatic stress episode. And all of a sudden, I realized something. When Jesus was at his worst, God didn't give him a scripture text. He gave him an experience. Hmm. And that that episodic experience is part of what enabled Christ to rise up and move forward and accept what he said would be God's will for him. And I remember crying and saying, God, I I thank you for your word. I love your word. Your word is good guidance. But I'm telling you, God, I need an experience. Yeah. Now, what's interesting since then is that neurobiology in the last 15 years is really hitting this issue that emotional trauma, unrepaired ruptures, they are not encoded in the left brain where everything is literal and logical. They're encoded in the body. They're encoded in the right brain. And that many attempts to help people are very conceptual. Mm. And it's Daniel Siegel, the great psychiatrist, that said this, concepts won't rewrite the brain. If you've been hurt through an emotion-laden experience, you must be healed through an emotion-laden experience. And that's what Christ wants to offer us. And that's what I spend my life doing through Healing Care Ministry. Uh, positioning people for a positive emotion-laden experience so that they can process the unrepaired rupture of their life in the light of Christ and begin to walk out to freedom. Wow. Can you say that again, Daniel Siegel? You you said if you've been hurt through an emotionally-laden experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That Our woundings are not conceptual. They're episodic. We have Uh episodes in life that wound us. And that, that's, that the encoding that happens in us encodes because of an emotion-laden experience. And what he and Mary Gordon and others say is this, you can't use a concept to rewire a brain. If you've been wounded through an emotion-laden experience, you must be healed through an emotion-laden yeah. experience. And in our case, is there any greater emotion-laden experience than encountering the presence of Christ right. in the place of our own brokenness? Yeah. Wow, that is so good. I'm over here like furiously writing that down because that is it's a powerful concept. And it's so true because of our story. I, I sit across from people often. I've, I've just one-on-one sometimes in a crowd of people and I try to help them understand how God has healed me. But I fall short with that sometimes because I'm like, no, I've, there, I've experienced some encounters with God that I cannot explain to you. And it was so personal and so intimate and so exactly what I needed in that moment that it was like the the personal touch from the Holy Spirit reaching down and saying, you know, fixing whatever that particular uh, stressor was or that, that anxious thought um, kind of as, I'm, as I've been healing through through my journey. And, and I always tell them, ask God for that for you. Because I've gotten, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, can, I can give you all this scripture. It's going to help. I mean, it's truth that we can base our life on. But at the end of the day, it can feel trite when you're when you're looking for a, a the the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, when you're looking for this encounter that's going to radically change you, 
you know, uh, and, and, and sometimes I'm saying that to someone and there's just a glossy eyed look and they're like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know. I've not, not had an encounter. What did that look like for you? You know, you said it was a journey. You said it was this long process. You had this realization, wait, I need to, I need to encounter more than just this conceptual healing. I need to encounter a very real experiential healing. So how did that play out for you? And maybe that'll give us kind of a construct for what we're, what we should be looking for in, in our own healing. Well, let me begin by saying that everything I'm about to say uh, demands, if you will, a healing community. Uh, it's it's mm. not just a one-on-one event. It's something that we need to have people that are willing to be with us in a supportive community to help us walk this out. But here's what, here's how it began to shape out for me. So I had this experience in the psychiatric hospital. Christians, they're explaining, explaining, explaining a lot of talk. I did understand better what was going on, but it didn't really move me to transformation. So in my prayer life, I began to seek more and more, and I had that encounter with, the, with Gethsemane where I cry out to God. Now, parallel to that, I began to just read uh, neurobiology because I wanted to have a greater understanding of some of what was going on here. And in the midst of that, I, I ran across a guy, his name is Endel Tolving, just a writer, and he said that we human beings have the ability to be mental time travelers, that when we're triggered, we can actually be acting out from unresolved places of the past. And boy, I could, I could relate to that, how mm. certain sights and smells could trigger me. And yep. it was highly emotional. And that's where I began to shape this, this desire. Lord, I think you can meet me here. So I started to read other people in inner healing, like David Siemens and John and Paula Sanford. And all of a sudden, this construct came to me that what if we get into a safe place? We ask Jesus to bring into our minds the emotional rupture of the past that he wants to work with. That in that safe place, as we begin to re-experience that, we invite Jesus into that moment. And as we do, all of a sudden, the light of Christ begins to shift things significantly. Yeah. Now, I, I'll, I'll give you... I'll give you an experience from my life, but then maybe one from someone that I worked with that I've written about in one of my books called Healing Care, Healing Prayer. So when I was a young kid, I didn't care a lot about school, obviously, and uh, I had very bad grades. I came home from playing basketball. Uh, I think it may have been basketball practice. I'm not sure. I came in the house. We had some relatives there. I had my report card. I put it up on, um, on the mantel. Uh, enjoying the conversation with some relatives. And all of a sudden, my mom comes over and she pulls out the report card and she starts to read my bad grades out loud in front of everyone. Hmm. And then she says, it's okay. Everybody knows you have nothing but, and then basically said, I had manure for brains. They all Hmm. laughed. That went straight to my psyche, straight to my soul. Now, Now, take years later, I've got a doctorate, I've tried to prove myself, I'm still trying to convince everybody that's not true, but somewhere deep inside, I believe it is true. So that may not sound out a significant wounding, but it was an emotional rupture. And one day, with a couple of friends, as I said, pray with me here, I asked the Lord to help me re-engage that moment. And boy, I could, I could remember being there. And all of a sudden, I just allowed myself to pour out my feelings and my words and my lament that I could never say there 
Mm. And all of a sudden in my mind's eye, I saw Jesus enter the room with me Mm. and he pulled me over to his chest and I began to cry and cry and cry. And the Lord just spoke into my heart, Terry, they're wrong. Mm. I'm sorry for what they've done to you. I have gifted you with my mind. It's just not true. Now that sounds so small, but it was episodic. It was an experience. And that kind of an event occurred in my life in deep issues like seeing my grandfather die in front of me, being locked in a car, and many, many other issues. And over the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity to train over 8,000 caregivers, pastors, counselors, physicians, psychologists, lay people, in how to position folks to encounter Christ in these unrepaired ruptures of the past. That's why, in mm-hmm. fact, I started Healing Care, this whole organization that I run, so that we can provide counseling and inner healing prayer and equipping, because God wants to meet us in those places. And here's what's interesting to me. In recent years, and I mean, in t- I've been doing this for 22 years, within the last 10, 8, 7 years, key neurobiologists and traumatologists are writing that this kind of an event is absolutely essential to stepping out of the emotional rupture. There's a guy named Ronald um, Rudin. He's an internist who wrote a book called Why the Past is Always Present. And he basically says, we need to be able to go into those places of the past where fight and flight were deeply engaged, but we had nowhere to run and no one to fight on our behalf. And we need to have an encounter that sets us free. That's what Jesus does. Davey, I know you know this. Mm -hmm. I was taught early on in life that Jesus works in the light Mm -hmm. and that you avoid the darkness. But I have learned that Isaiah 45.3 is true. And that is there are treasures of darkness hidden in secret places. And I must say in my own journey with all of my mess and all of my mistakes, I've learned that Jesus does some of his best work when we're in the ditch Mm. and that we're keeping trying to get out of that ditch to get on the Mount of, you know, transfiguration. And there's Jesus right with us in the midst of the ditch. And he wants to meet us there and love us there and heal us there. And it does happen. And that's part of the good news of grace, that mm. God is big enough to meet us in our ditch and set us free. Wow. Terry, you feel like part of this journey, too, has been forgiveness of some of the things that have happened in the past, uh, forgiving uh, you know, people, people that have done stuff to you, people that have sure. hurt you, people that have uh, forgiven yourself, even kind of reconciling some things with God. At what point in your journey and in this process of healing did that begin to, uh, were you confronted with those kinds of things? You know, was it one of those things where you had to kind of work through some things yourself and then you were all of a sudden, oh, wait, I need to work through this with other people? Was it all, um, you know, parallel with each other, working in tandem? How how did that play out? Well, obviously, as a Christian, I had learned that forgiveness is very, very important. But here's the revelation that really shifted my life. I mentioned the story of Gethsemane. Yeah. In Gethsemane, Jesus, Jesus is grieving his loss. Uh, He's grieving. I mean, there's no question. There's grief involved in this. Here's what I realized one night. Jesus grieved in Gethsemane before he asked the Father to forgive from Calvary. Mm. And I think I was trying to forgive 
before I'd really grieve the loss, before mm. I'd really touch the loss. And when, when you forgive before you've grieved, you're just throwing the blanket of forgiveness over yeah. something that really has the potential of decaying. And so I see forgiveness as part of a larger process. Mm. Forgiveness is part of touching the losses of our lives, grieving them, lamenting them the way that Scripture talks about. You know, the psalmist, they knew how to lament. They said what That's was right. on their mind before God. Uh, and sometimes they said it in brutal terms, but then you see a doxology comes mm. when they're able to begin to say, Father, you take care of that. All, I'm, all I know is I'm glad that, that you love me. Yeah. And, and so for what happened for me was that as I began to lament my grandfather and my parents and my own actions and my caricatures of God, as I begin to lament all that, suddenly I'm able to forgive. Mm. And, and it's, it's like grieving sets us free to truly forgive because in the grieving, we receive, if you will, an endowment from God that's greater than even that which we have uh, been holding. Wow. And all of a sudden, we're able to extend and say, God, with your help now, I can forgive. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, forgiveness is essential. I think without forgiveness, we're contributing to evil. Uh, Miroslav Volf, the great theologian, said it takes two acts for evil to win the day, the evil act done to you and the evil act you do in response. And so mm. he also says that if someone does something to us and through grieving, we eventually get to the place of being able to extend what I consider to be honest, healthy forgiveness then all of a sudden, evil can't win the day. Wow. That's so good. I love what you're saying there in regards to having to really enter into the grief process before you can step into honest forgiveness. You know, I think, you know, we, we talk oftentimes that forgiveness is a choice, and it is. It's not an emotion that you feel. It's a decision that you make. But at the same time, if you don't step into that, the depth of feeling the hurt or the pain or the injustice done, if you don't feel it fully, you almost, you almost diminish the effects of forgiveness because you're not, it's like, it's not, it's not covering or cloaking the actual act that was done to you. Um, but, but what you're also saying, it sounds like, is that when you do step into that, you do enter that, you let the, the Lord really meet you in those places. It's like forgiveness kind of comes out of an overflow of what God's doing in your heart they're in those deep lamenting type seasons. I, I agree with that. Let, may I weigh in at two points? One is this. Um, yeah. I, I, think, I think this. I think that when we're in the process and we haven't yet lamented and touched the loss, we don't have the freedom to act unforgivingly. Right. You know, mm. that's like, I have a season now that I can poke people in the eye. And that is a decision. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think forgiveness ultimately involves something that is more than a act of the will. Mm. I think it involves a, a, an engagement with God mm. where all of a sudden there, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, 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 a monk actually. I think he's a Roman Catholic monk from Germany named Anselm Gruen. He's written tons of books and he wrote a book called heaven begins within you. And he said that raging before God at the offense of another is the only way to get that offense off of you. Wow. 
What he means by that is we got to go honestly before God. Mm. We got to say what's really in our heart. Let it come up and out how hurt, how angry, how disappointed, how much loss we have. And then as we do that, we begin to encounter the God who lifts it, the God who we can now move toward doxology. And so that when we do in, move into forgiveness, which, by the way, doesn't mean it didn't matter or, right. you know, I'm going to forget. It, it, it means I can, I can let God handle this now and I can move forward mm. with it. And, and I think that's, that's really where the power of this really lies. And, and I would suggest something. Uh, and I've been speaking in a lot of venues for years and years. I think there is a lot of ungrieved loss in the church. Mm, yeah. And it's ungrieved for two reasons. One, because people were taught to forgive too quickly, meaning they weren't taught how to touch the loss. Mm. But number two, because they feared judgment, if you will. Yeah. And, and I go into a church and there's a lot of ungrieved loss of things that happened to them that they never really grieved. They didn't touch the loss. And it leads to a lot of ill health, and it can lead to dysfunctional behavior. Yeah. And here's the Lord that says, let me meet you there. Tell me how you really feel. Yeah. Tell me what's really on your heart. Get it out. Don't clean it up. I want it just the way it's there. Mm. And all of a sudden, as it comes up and out, there is this infusion of the presence of God's grace so that to a degree, forgiveness becomes an episodic moment filled with light, yeah. not simply an act of the will. Wow. Man, Terry, this is, uh, this has been an incredible, um, I'm over, you, you should see my notes in front of me. I hate that we're not on a uh, like camera. I'm just scribbling things like crazy, writing all these different notes. This has been so helpful for me, especially all the different authors too, that you've mentioned. Um, but, but I want to ask before we were, you know, we, we end the conversation. If, if a listener is listening to this and they're going, man, I, I want to experience this kind of healing. I recognize that I've got some unresolved pain, unresolved um, grief in my past, and, and I want to encounter this. I, I want to move through and become um, someone who's not wounded by this, but someone who is able to heal others as well. But man, first I need to experience healing for myself. Where do you recommend that they get started? How should they move in that direction? Well, I... Forgive me for being so self-serving, but <laughs> this is one of the, this is one of the reasons that I wrote some kind of crazy. Yeah, because uh, I, I the 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 title itself has a double meaning. First, it's about my own crazy mm. and the fact that God met me in crazy, but it's also some kind of crazy love that God mm. meets us, and 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 so the the piece of that that memoir that I think could help people was being able to watch how a story unfolds where suddenly God meets us in our ditch and that we can become open and honest about our story. You know, Viola yeah. Davis is a great actress and recently she spoke at uh, Barnard College and in it she said, we have to own our whole story, both the good and bad parts of us. She said, we live in a broken world. Who said our story has to be only the good pieces? Well, a good friend of mine who is an author named uh, Kurt Thompson, uh, he, he said, it's only by embracing our whole story that we meet the one true storyteller. Mm, wow. And so, so what, what I want 
the reason I wrote that was so that people can begin to consider, hey, if, if God can do this in that guy, yep. as crazy as he is, God can meet me. I think the other thing is, um, you know, I, I mean, I have a whole organization, Healing Care, and they can go on websites, either terrywardle.org or Healing Care or whatever. And we have literature and videos, and they can come to seminars, and we have healing retreats, and I have a counseling center where people come, and they meet Christ around individuals that really want to do this kind of episodic mm. healing. The other thing that I think is important that everyone needs to hear, we all need to be part of a community that is non-judgmental, filled with grace, where we're able to be served by wounded healers. I, would, I was warned that if people knew I was messed up, it would ruin my ministry. <laughs> I'm going to tell you I've experienced the exact opposite. That's right, yep. The exact opposite, that, that when we are with people and we have limps, but Jesus is meeting us in that limp, it attracts other people, and all of a sudden, out of our wounds, we begin to experience deep healing. And that, that's the essence of the gospel. Look, you know this. Yep. We cherish the wounds of Christ. Yeah. And now he wants our wounds to actually be a source of healing to other people. And it's all his grace. It's not our brilliance. It's not anything about our insight. It's God's healing grace flowing through broken people that heals broken people. Mm. Gosh, so good. So good. Terry, thank you so much. And I want the listener to know that this is not just, I mean, this is the book that's just released, I'm kind of crazy, but you've got several other books that you've authored that you've written that, um, and man, this has just been full of so much wisdom, this conversation. And so I definitely want to encourage the listener to go check out your resources and check out the things that you're offering and the events and the retreat counseling and all of that, that you're doing the workshops. I'm so, um, I'm so glad we made this connection, Terry. I'm like, I'm 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 kind of speechless to be honest with you. I don't know if it's because it's a full day of podcasting that we've done or if it's all of this stuff that you've just <laughs> downloaded in me because I'm, you know, I mean it's it's just it's so profound and powerful what you're saying. This is confirming so much of what we have been sensing and feeling as we're working with people that this, you know, this there there needs to be this true experiential encounter with God, with the with the living God in not just in a salvation experience, but in all the healing of our broken pieces as well. And that he's going to meet us in some of those just monumental, episodic, as you call it, episodic cases where he's going to reach in and he's going to, and he's going to touch us if we open ourselves up to it. And if we invite him into that, and if we recognize that's what, um, that's what we need is for him to rush in and do that. And so, man, thank you so much for speaking that into our listeners. Thank you for what you're doing, the message you're carrying. Thank you for being faithful with that and uh, leading those of us who who love this kind of work, leading us into, man, just hope and encouragement that this is the right path. This is the right thing to help this, this world with right now. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I, I mean, I... I I love what you're doing. I love the very notion of what your podcast is about. You're reinforcing the premise that with God, there is no throwaway suffering. Mm -hmm. He meets us there. He transforms us there. And there are encounters that are waiting for us, as we say, you know, as Jesus says to us, come to me. And I just want yeah. to thank you, David. This has been a great, great privilege. And I, uh, I applaud what you're doing. And I, I bless you in the strong name of Christ for or what you're, what you're doing for the body of Christ. Mm. Well, thank you, Terry. And thanks for joining me. 
And um, thank you guys for listening. I told you you guys were going to love this one. Told you. And we did. It was it was pretty incredible. Yeah, I thought what was really interesting is um, just how much our, our unhealed wounds, I mean, he talks about this, how much they can come back and, and bite us. And we're all going to experience on one level or another, some more, some less, these like trauma, the little T trauma, big T trauma through our childhood. And, um, you know, that's, that may or may not be, you know, our fault. Sometimes you can kind of put yourself in situations where you experience trauma and sometimes it's just, it just happens to you. You experience these things. They have impact. Mm -hmm. The important thing is, is to recognize those when, when it happens to recognize those, to face them and to work through them. Well, I love what Andrew Bauman said in a past episode. He basically said that you can have your armor up and it was needed as a child. A child doesn't know how to handle mm-hmm. the abuse that they're getting. So they're going to create any mechanism, uh, a wall, a barrier, whatever, to protect themselves. Yeah. But the older you get when you're out of that trauma, when you're out of that middle of that war scene, you don't need that armor anymore, but you still continue to carry it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, again, triggers are definitely those indicators that are going to help you understand like what you are haven't been healed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, in Terry's case... If you if you don't address those, then they will come back and and they're going to manifest themselves in um, some more pain, mm-hmm. you know. And and we saw that with his, um, you know, where he found himself in a, I mean, in a psych ward. He had gone to such an extent where he had not addressed these things. I think one of the most profound things that he said is um, the trauma that you faced. That was an experience, and to get over that trauma, it's you need to go through another experience, except this time it's a healing experience. And I've never really heard it like that. I've always thought like, is it a curriculum? Is it a book? Is it a just, you know, whatever. And it's the experience of Jesus in your life is how you will overcome what you've been through. And so that was really, really good for me. I also feel like I'm, uh, I feel like as a Christian, I'm pretty consistently growing and learning, but he probably said like five authors <laughs> or, you know, know, people that I've never heard of that I was writing down, like, okay, I need to look need them to up them. that I want to read <laughs> that the book. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Just a wealth of wisdom. Oh, that's amazing. Well, um, he was such a great interview. We've got a great interview next week, uh, with John O'Leary. Um, and next week, Mel is your last episode with us. It's my oh, goodbye. So it's the last episode that you'll be filling the role of the co-host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. And it's so sad. We are very sad to see you go. Super sad. We'll talk a little but bit more about this. You. Yeah. We'll talk more about it next week as to kind of what's uh, on the horizons for you guys, why you're stepping away from doing this. We're unbelievably appreciative of you and your entire family and Charlie for loaning you out <laughs> here and there as we've been doing this. But again, we'll talk more about it next week. We want to thank Sleeping at Last for all the music. He provides the music for the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Uh, Go and download his music anywhere where you can stream and download music. And listen to this clip from our interview with John O'Leary that we're releasing next week. So on a Saturday morning, back to your question, I came over to a can of gasoline, one of those old red metal five-gallon containers, totally filled with gasoline. I bent down next to it, lit a piece of cardboard on fire, 
And in my own little mind, I thought I was going to pour a little bit of gasoline on top of this flame to see what might happen, thinking it would just spark mm. like I'd seen the other boys doing. And as I tipped this container, Davey, before the liquid even came out, the fumes, right? mm. <laughs> we could play on this one for a whole podcast. In life, it's not liquid that burns. It's almost always fumes. Wow. It's not what you see coming. It's what you don't. Uh, wow. So that day, I, I never saw this coming. The fumes came out of that can, created a huge explosion, split the can in two, and then it launches me 20 feet against the far side of the garage. It, it set my world on fire. Wow. Everything around me is aflame. And, you know, as little kids, we all were taught and trained what to do when we're on fire. Mm. Stop, drop, and roll. Mm -hmm. And then the thing happens, and you don't do it. <laughs> 